Welcome to episode 91 of the Historic Performance Podcast, featuring Sam Blanchard, Academy Clinical Lead Physiotherapist at Scottish Rugby Union. Many of us started down the path of strength and conditioning or physiotherapy because we are failed athletes. Either our playing days were riddled with injuries, or we simply were not good enough. This isn't the case with Sam Blanchard. No. Instead, his journey began with a challenge. There was a conversation that I had with my careers advisor at school where he told me that nobody from the school had ever made it onto physiotherapy, so he suggested I did something different. And at that point, I felt a bit of a challenge, so I decided to submit to all of the physiotherapy schools I could within the UK, so we were allowed six options. Uh, I went for that, and it was almost a point of trying to prove somebody wrong at that point. That challenge led Sam down a journey that has seen him work in three different countries and within three different sports. His professional interests include the clinical reasoning behind rehabilitation and the variables that contribute towards effective program design, which leads us to today's discussion, where Sam talks about his updated model of rehab design, which was recently accepted in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and how he utilizes nonlinear pedagogy and sensory motor progressions within his rehabilitation model. Enjoy the conversation. Today, I'm joined by Sam Blanchard. Sam is the Academy Clinical Lead Physiotherapist for Scottish Rugby Union. Sam, how are you doing? Very good, James. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. Thank you for the invite. Sam, in 2014, you published along with Professor Phil Glasgow a theoretical model on rehabilitation progression in the journal Physical Therapy and Sport. Currently, both you and Dr. Glasgow are awaiting publication of an updated model of rehabilitation design in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. What was the initial catalyst for the theoretical model on rehabilitation progression that was published back in 2014? So the, the first theoretical model was a, an attempt to present to the staff that I was working with at a, a soccer club in the UK, Brighton and Hove Albion. I was the lead physiotherapist for the academies uh, and worked with a number of full-time and part-time staff with varying experiences and backgrounds. Uh, the, especially with the part-time staff in, in football, tends to be people that are, that are trying to make their way into sport. Um, so we'll mainly have jobs within the, the National Health Service over here, may not have access to players as regularly as we do in sport, or maybe not even access acute injuries. So the presentation I was trying to do was my attempt to get down my philosophies of rehabilitation. And in doing so, I was looking at how I would progress an exercise, how I would safely and effectively challenge an athlete uh, on, a, on a process through one single exercise. So in doing so, I, what I tried to do was, was draw it out using diagrams on, on Microsoft Word, actually. The model now is, is, is presented uh, with a load of colors and, and rectangles and triangles that, that explain how a single exercise can be progressed with the addition of external stimuli 
or more challenging variations, but in a safe way that it, there's not too many variables at once that that would make the athlete unsafe or risk re-injury. So effectively, what the injury, what the model looks like is it starts off with a, a blue triangle. Uh, it's a right a right angle triangle where the the progressive slope up one side is progressive variables within that one exercise. So that could be repetitions, sets, it could be speed of movement, it could be the um, the weight that is lifted. But essentially, nothing within that, the, the, the movement of that exercise changes. All that changes is the things that, that encompass that exercise. So if we take repetitions as the most obvious example, uh, you would start with two or three repetitions to make sure that the athlete was pain-free and comfortable and the movement looked somewhat acceptable. Then what you would do is you would progress those repetitions, and that's the the, the linear slope of the, the triangle moving outwards, is that that might progress to 20 repetitions, for example. Then what you might do is you might add an external stimulus. You might add some sort of uneven surface. You might change the range that you work within by the addition of, of a box or a step. You might add perturbation with the use of like viper bands, or you might even add something external like throwing a ball or passing the ball. That new addition to, to the exercise cannot be met with the presumption that because they can do 20 repetitions on a solid surface with no other extrinsic factors that they can then do those same 20 repetitions with this new addition so what happens then is with the addition of one block underneath this triangle the triangle then drops back down to that that singular point so you then go back down to four or five repetitions and then build the triangle back up that slope so then every time that you add a new block there's a regression that is involved in that so but it's safe in the knowledge that with every progression pushes that athlete back towards a return to function or a return to sport. There are regressions within that, but but you know that actually that the, the movement is, is towards a progressive return to play. As I mentioned in that previous statement, uh, you, you've now modified it a bit. That one has been accepted by the British Journal of Sports Medicine and hasn't been published yet. But why did you feel that was necessary to create an updated one? 2017, it's, it's just been accepted with minor revisions. So those minor revisions went in. So hopefully that will uh, be published as an editorial soon. The updated model came about when I was, again, it was it was during a presentation to some staff. I was working at the Buffalo Sabres uh, in Western New York and uh, was trying to present on a longitudinal rehab process with one of the athletes. This was a successful integration of work with sports scientist over there, Chad Gerhard, uh, the strength and conditioning coaches that were there, with uh, Jason Kilijanski and Cedric Unholz. And it was a, a multimodal team approach into a, from an acute to an end-stage rehabilitation that got the player back to a level of high performance, which we were quite proud of, that it was quite a tight turnaround. It wasn't just getting the guy back on the ice. It was actually getting back to a level of he could compete. And what I realized when I was trying to put this down again on paper was that the model that we had that was original were uh, originally published in 2014 was a great example of how to progress a single exercise. So if you take something like a single leg balance and how you progress that exercise to become more challenging, that one model works for that single exercise. What it doesn't do is it doesn't show you the integration of an entire rehabilitation program. So when you've got multifaceted exercises that have different aims and goals, spanning over different durations, being introduced at different times during that time period. The one model itself didn't work, but what 
what quickly became apparent was elements of, of one exercise can transfer quite easily into a more regressed exercise. So as, as we move from acute stage injury through to mid-stage, the ability or the function of the tissues as they improve mean that we can be more demanding with the exercises that we present. But what I didn't want to do was have to then go right the way back to a completely regressed version of that just to fit this model. What became clear was actually elements of other exercises that we've done can transfer. So for example, if we if there was a rotational element to exercise A that we've been doing for two or three weeks in the early stages, and then the new introduction of an exercise further on, logically and, and quite safely, the clinician can now look at this and go, well, I know that this joint and these tissues can cope with the elements of transverse plane exercises. Therefore, I don't need to start right at the beginning with this exercise. I can take an element from somewhere else and bring this in. And this is what this new model displays. It's more of a sort of a parallel theories of how other exercises can pinch from other uh, pre-existing ones. Um, and therefore, we can continue to, to challenge and optimally load athletes uh, throughout a, a rehabilitation process. Now that we have the framework for the model, Perhaps it would be great to, to flush it out a bit. As we slowly make our way through this theoretical model continuum, I'm guessing the, the natural first place to start is probably injury. As a physiotherapist in sport, I'm sure you've seen your fair share of injuries throughout your time. And in one of your blog posts, you, you talked about how serious muscular injuries are generally classified as either happening di direct or indirect. In your opinion, what should occur during these initial days right after the injury has occurred? I think that that's one of the, the exciting things working in sport is we quite often see the injuries happening and we can influence them from day zero. During the initial days, the, the challenge is, is education to the player, to the coaches. I, I do a lot of work with young athletes, so then you have to involve schools, colleges, teachers, parents as well. Managing expectations in these early days, especially for a long injury, can be quite difficult. But I think that's the key place to start. Then it's an acceptance that the injury has happened and we, we can't do anything about that. But what we can do is we can prevent that injury from getting any worse or we can prevent any secondary injuries that may be linked to that. So there, there's a, the protection phase becomes quite important in, in this stage. Then we look to... Where possible, we look at optimal loading. This is where, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the PRICE. So the PRICE acronym existed in the UK for, for quite a while, where it was protection, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. The problem we found with this was that the word rest was taken too literally, and, and we had athletes sitting on the sofa, uh, sitting on the couch, watching Netflix for two weeks, not actually doing anything. Uh, and then by the time the structure had healed their general level of fitness was was quite low and, and then you know you've got a longer process off the back of that rehabilitation period a working party including chris bleakley based over in northern ireland decided to drop the the rest element from this acronym and replace it with optimal load so now the acronym is police and they've got a great paper within the bgsm called uh, is it time to call the police what this optimal load now does is that we can we can start thinking about the contralateral limb. You know, how can we maintain strength and function through the non-injured aspects? Uh, how do we maintain the cardiovascular system? All of these other things that that don't stop just because of of one injury 
uh, somewhere else in the body. So in these early periods of injury, optimal loading is becoming a, a really interesting and and welcome challenge, I think, for physiotherapists in, in that it, it's driving a bit of creativity. It's challenging people to maintain safety and protect the injury, but also address the athlete as a person and not just focus on, on one in, injured site. So those those initial days now become, whereas previously they were quite hands-off or perhaps just managing swelling and pain, we're actually now getting people moving a lot quicker as a result. And then I think there's a lot of additional modalities that we can use in this time period. I think uh, muscle stimulation is, is very useful. I know that you recently interviewed Dan Lewindon, uh, and I know that he spoke quite quite well about the application of muscle stim in the early stages for maintaining contractility of the of the muscles and, and, and activation around those around muscle fibers and, and firing and things like that. Blood flow restriction is starting to get a little bit more scientific weight behind it. Whereas I think it's a, a modality that we've always known about and been aware of for you know since the nineties. It's only now that that people are actually investigating the the mechanisms behind that and the, the physiology that, that goes into that. And there's some great work being done over here in the UK at St. Mary's University by um, Stephen Patterson, Ben Rosenblatt and Luke Hughes, who are looking at different ways of using blood flow restriction in different types of populations. So not only athletes, but elderly populations as well. And, and the mechanisms it has perhaps on bone healing rate, early activation of type 2 fibres um, because of the hypoxic environment that it creates even with something as simple as as walking across the room we can recruit type 2 fibers which usually would not be would not be recruited so again in these early stages we can optimally load injuries quite well and we've got a lot of different modalities that we can use to to do that depending on the level of elite sport that you're in you can you can utilize sort of hydrotherapy aqua jogging um, anti-gravity treadmills all of these fantastic things that will hopefully take off a day or two or maybe even longer off the end of the, the rehabilitation process. So both in the acronym PRICE and POLICE, you have the I, which stands for ICE. Um, I know that ICE is something that is an area that really leads to a lot of controversy, whether ICE should be used, whether ICE shouldn't be used. Based on the information that you've gathered and based on your own practice, does ICE have a place during the initial period of injury I, I still use it a lot the work i just mentioned about police they, they did a big literature review of all of these components so including compression and elevation and, and we looked at what the evidence is currently telling us i think where we're we're becoming a bit a bit more clear with ice is that it doesn't have the anti-inflammatory effect that we thought it did we get more of an anti-inflammatory effect from compression and elevation However, what we do get from ice is an analgesic effect. Um, it tends to, to provide a little bit of pain relief that then opens up opportunity to, to load things in different ways. Where I use it for soccer players, rugby players, um, is acute ankle injuries, extremities, where we can submerge the foot in cold water, iced water. I think you get the combined effect of hydrostatic pressure, which uh, provides the compression element. But equally, if, it, if it's cold enough and we can acclimatize the athlete to it into, to the point where they, the injury becomes numb, 
we can load things in ways that we weren't able to when they're not in the ice. So again, you take an acute ankle injury, for example, if the athlete is unable to weight bear in standing because of this injury, what we find is is a minute or two within the ice, actually they can then weight bear because of this the, the, the analgesic effect of the ice. What we then get is, is we get early loading, we get tensile load through ligamentous structures. Um, it, it resets the, the nervous system. Maybe that's a bit of a, a crude thing to say, but it seems to do that in that it reminds athletes what is normal it almost sets like a normality to 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 function this is where the the protection phase comes in quite quite well here is that we know that if if it's an inversion injury on the ankle for example and all we're asking them to do is weight bear then we're not lengthening those tissues we're not asking it to do anything that is abnormal and and even one day, two days post injury, we can do this quite effectively. And and the the knock on effects that, that has is is quite obvious, quite rapid. Um, so I, I I'm a big believer in in the use of ice. I just think we need to be more aware of what we're using it for, and it is that pain relieving effect. So I think it's important that that athletes are aware of that, that they're not expecting for it to reduce inflammation or reduce swelling. It's also useful to to modify how often we use it as well. As soon as we can modulate pain via normal movement, I think that's when we, we drop the use of ice. Sam, one of the main reasons that I contacted you is due to your professional interest in nonlinear pedagogy and also sensory motor function progression and how to integrate them within a rehabilitation model. The first question I have for you is, how should one define nonlinear pedagogy? I think it would be useful to explain a couple of definitions um, that, that I use interchangeably uh, throughout throughout the definition and that, that fits to the rehab model. The first thing, it relates to sort of the verbal cues that we use with with coaching or, or you know, in rehabilitation. And, and you could probably relate to this in that you say something to an athlete that you think are crystal clear instructions and it makes complete sense in your head and, and you you describe exactly what you want them to do throughout this exercise. And then you look at them and you're like, what are you doing? That's nothing like I expected you to do. And, and that's, that all comes down to, to, to this sort of the, the, the coaching, the teaching and the learning aspects that, that different individuals have. And the first definition I, I want to talk about is the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic exercises, where intrinsic exercises are, reliant on those internal feedback mechanisms where the athlete is acutely tuned into what they're doing now a good example of that is balance exercises where the athlete ideally what we do is we start off quite early stages we'll have them in a in a safe room or a gym where there's environmentally there is quite consistent and, and what they're doing is they're internalizing their movements and and fine motor movements into exactly what what is happening around their foot and ankle, their knee, their hip, very internalized. The next progression from that is are extrinsic exercises. And this revolve around the athlete and the environment. And this is more of an external thought process um, that includes more uncontrolled variables. So for example, um, reacting to the terrain that you're on. So a, a downhill BMXer or a skier or something like that, that, that isn't thinking about joint position sense as such. They're more reacting to the environment around them. Intrinsic and extrinsic, I've previously got these mi mixed up um, with implicit and explicit teaching and learning um, but very different 
but actually go hand in hand for, for this rehabilitation model. Explicit teaching is where as a coach, we would give clear, concise instructions, such as place your foot here, bend your knee to this angle, all of those sort of things that are very quick and easy for us to deliver and will we'll produce some very quick short-term achievements from the athlete. We, we get good results quite quickly from those types of instruction. The other end to that is the implicit teaching that we could do, which is more non-directive. So that's things like push the ground away with your foot. And that encourages the athlete to focus more on like sounds or surface contact, etc. So it's not really like a, a conscious process. The difficulty with implicit teaching is that it creates more crude movements that may not be exactly what we expect them to do or, or is what, what was in our head or what a textbook might define as, as good movement. But what you do get with this implicit teaching is you get a more fine-tuned movement with practice as that athlete learns about the variability of movement. Gentile in 1998 put together a fantastic article where they explain all of these definitions and and for me, I think a big debate that physical therapists, strength and conditioning coaches, physical prep coaches have is, is what is function? What is a functional exercise? And I like their definition in, in this article where, where function is defined as changing or maintaining body position within an environment, changing and maintaining the position of an object within an environment, or both of those things concurrently. Then if you were to do that function at a skilled level, the skill is then this goal that is achieved consistently and with efficient motor behaviors. So I like this definition because what it does is it allows variability of movement and execution, but with a consistent outcome. And in doing so, we encourage that exploration of variability in movement. And, and for me, a lot of my career has been spent with young developing athletes. And I think that's, that's crucial that we explore these variabilities in movement, that the difference might be come in the role it has in rehabilitation compared to non-injured athletes where we're looking more at injury prevention. So this leads me on to to talk more about the implicit learning or, or teaching and how that feeds into non-linear pedagogy. So implicit is more of a useful tool for, for force production or force absorption. It takes into account external forces such as gravity or centrifugal forces or those sort of things that, that may act as like a perturbation or create unwanted irregular movements within an athlete. And so therefore what the athlete does is they create co-contractions within the body to, to increase joint stiffness. This is a good example of, of non-linear pedagogy where you can create a learning environment to explore movement variability that we've just talked about by saying things, like, especially working with young athletes, you say something like, Okay, the ground is made of lava. So they're stepping off of a box, for example, and what you're looking to do is that create that stretch shortening cycle, that, that reactivity around the around the joint, around the, the kinetic chain. Saying something as simple as that as the ground is made of lava, think how quickly those kids would step off the box and then jump back up in the air. How easy that is for us as a coach, and how easy that is for the, the kid to understand compared to then trying to explain in that more explicit teaching of what exactly we want them to do, how we create those co-contractions, that, that active joint stiffness and things like that. So for me, that's that's the value of nonlinear pedagogy. And again, I, I'm talking a lot about youth athletes because that's where a lot of my background is, but we we can really tap into an imagination that they have that, that 
benefits us as coaches or as, as physical therapists, physiotherapists in, in our delivery of our practice. There's uh, For any of your Twitter followers, I'd, I'd highly recommend them following Jeremy Frisch, which is spelled F-R-I-S-C-H. And he's got some fantastic videos of working with kids. And, just get, and for them, they're just playing. But actually what he's done is he's really cleverly designed it so that it's actually physical preparation. And it's all done in, in and I imagine this, this non-linear pedagogy where, where things are, are left quite open and, and to the imagination. It's not so direct. In rehabilitation, where this becomes useful, these definitions of intrinsic, extrinsic exercise, implicit, explicit teaching, and, and you know the, the, this non-linear pedagogy, is understanding those motor learning processes where, where learning any new task initially is going to be rapid, but without further stimuli or quickly plateau. And that's where this, this rehabilitation model comes in, is the regular re- introduction of external stimulus or additional stimulus. Again, there's a, a good definition by Gentile where he talks about the power law of practice. And what this is, is this is sort of a parallel theories where the use of explicit instructions can happen quite early on to create stabilization of a movement. So again, we internalize that, that thought process. And then what we do is we encourage implicit learning over a more gradual time scale. So if you think of, of a graph where you've got time along the x-axis and, and skill on the y-axis, and you have this linear progression all the way through, at the very early stages, this is where we perhaps have a rehabilitation in acute injury. This is where we have intrinsic exercises that are explicitly delivered. So it's very safe, very controlled. There is nothing else going on in this athlete's mind other than focusing on the performance of this exercise. Then if we're clever, what we do is we progress that or we transition that very slowly and it becomes more about extrinsic exercise so that you know the athlete within the environment, that external thought processing, and our delivery is more implicit. Eventually what we should do is, is as that rehabilitation process goes on, the dependency on us as coaches should become less and less because effectively what we want to do is we're performing them, uh, we're returning them to performance where they'll be thinking about the movement of opposition, the movement of teammate, the addition of a ball. You know, in the elite end, you've then got the crowd, the media, all these other things that are going on that they can't for one second be thinking about okay, I need to place my foot here and bend the knee to this angle and control this muscle through this movement. So it's that that gradual sort of progression through that, that with not only our exercises becoming more demanding, but mental process for them as well becoming more challenging and less reliant on us as coaches. There's there's some great diagrams by Guadagnoli and Lee who, who look at optimal challenge points. Again, looking at things like um, at looking at skill and demand. And where these challenge points meet compared to a novice and an expert. Now, for me, that's quite interesting because that's for a, for a coach, for example, that's understanding your population and, and, and training history and those sort of things. But for a physiotherapist, if, if there's a linear progression from novice to expert over a period of years, for example, however long it takes to, to refine a skill, what we have to consider immediately after injury is that they revert back to a novice to perform that skill. Now, that sounds quite dramatic, but again, take ankle injuries are, are great examples of this because they're easy to, to, for everyone to picture. Most people have twisted their ankle. You take a skill like walking where, you know, that spinal reflex where you don't even have to consciously think about the, the performance of walking. But then, you, so at this point, you're an expert at it. 
following ankle injury, every step becomes painful. Every step you then think about foot position or or movement and, and pushing off. And so you, you revert back to a novice to perform that skill. And it's only when things like pain and function improve that you can revert back to that expert level. So understanding these different challenge points is one thing for non-injured athletes. It becomes completely different when you're, you're working with an injured athlete. And we can't just presume that because they were able to perform their sport at an expert level prior to injury, that they can just pick that up straight, straight away following injury. So this is where the, this, this new model, this new rehab model comes in, is that we can start to look at progression of, of different exercises across a program design. So one exercise, a very basic exercise that we could do from acute injury might progress this way from working with intrinsic, explicit communication between coach and athlete. And as that progresses, it becomes more extrinsic and explicit. But at this point, we might only take that injury, that, that exercise to a point of subacute or mid-stage injury, at which point we, we introduce more challenging exercises. Now, just because this one exercise has progressed and become more extrinsic and implicit, these new exercises that we feed in need to go back to that level of intrinsic and explicit, so more directed. But what we can probably do is we can probably using our experience of watching the athlete perform this rehabilitation process is we know what elements they will cope well with and which ones need a little bit longer to for them to perfect those skills. So this, this model now becomes multi-layered, that there are parallels running between that, that transfer from one exercise to another, if, if that makes sense. Expert versus novice or, you know, elite to, to non-elite sort of population. And it will depend on, on who you're working with. You'll know what, what skill level the majority of the athletes are pre-injury and, and post-injury. This leads us quite nicely onto to sensory motor function is experts within a skill will recognize which cues are important and relevant. And what they can do is they can avoid information overload. So they can shut out things that, that aren't relevant to them performing that skill to an expert level. So again, we need to consider that if we're working in rehabilitation as we take, as we become more dependent on those those senses that perhaps perhaps before they've been able to shut out because they can focus on that execution of the skill because they now don't function in the same way perhaps because of tissue damage of nociception of imperfect feedback from from ligamentous or joint capsule structures things like that we can't just take for granted that they're still at that expert level so. Again, our progression of exercises need to be considerate of these external stimuli, this information overload. We need to make sure that exercises are progressed in a way that is challenging but is safe. And for me as a physiotherapist, this is why I love working with strength and conditioning coaches because I think inherently as a physio, I'm quite conservative. Um, I, I like to protect the athlete. I like to protect the injury. I don't like things getting worse and it reflects on me if they re-injure and all this sort of thing. But but working in elite sport, you can't do that too much because then you've got the time pressures of, of getting them back. And actually, I quite like working with the strength and conditioning coaches who are inherently a little bit more the other way. I think that we, we balance each other out quite well. Sam, the, the last area that I want to touch upon would be end-stage rehabilitation. I know that Joe Club wrote a fantastic blog post for the website that you maintain. Um, which he was talking about whether you can scientifically assess whether a player is ready to return to play. 
but I, I know that your the majority of your work has been with the youth athletes. So perhaps some of the things that Joe mentioned may not necessarily be feasible at, at the academy level or at the youth level simply because of budgetary constraints. Based on, on your knowledge, how have you gone about assessing youth athletes, whether or not they're ready to return to play? And what are some of the variables involved with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I've been I've been very lucky to experience both ends of the spectrum where I've, I've worked with young athletes on quite a low budget, um, but equally been spoiled with, with a high budget for, for young athletes where the, the football club I was at that we, we actually had GPS units right the way down to um, ages nine and ten, um, which is incredible, really. I think Joe wrote wrote really well about this on the the return for elite athletes. I think with youth athletes, it's it's a little bit more multifactorial, which is in my mind part of the challenge that I enjoy working with with the young athletes. Depending on the age that you're working with, you you have to take into account maturity and, and level of growth biological maturity as well as chronological maturity um, looking at, at things like peak height velocity and understanding what what challenges that would give to to the athlete and to you as a, as a rehabilitation coach we know that peak height velocity for example coincides with an increased risk of injury bone mineralization for example lags behind that linear bone growth interestingly this this doesn't correlate always with physical strength so we can't always use physical strength as a measure of return to play. There, there, are, there are certain links towards height and strength ratios. Um, but again, this is then thrown out because heavy athletes um, have to then cope with greater force absorption that is required. So we know that, you know, it's obvious that heavy athletes don't always equal strong. Strong doesn't always equal control. Tall athletes don't necessarily mean that they're mature. So all of these things, it is very multifactorial and it becomes very complex when you look at a neuromuscular system that perhaps is now having to deal with the control of new lever lengths um, following bone growth or following a, a growth spurt, for example. Again, around these these ages of, of peak height velocity, ages 14 to 16 in males, slightly younger in females, probably around 13 to 15. At different stages of the rehab process, we, we need to accept or acknowledge their, their developmental state and and this this is very transient this changes and, and this could this is evident when you can have the best player from from three or four years previous when you, they were in the younger age groups then they hit this growth spurt and they become almost that clumsy clumsy child what we need to address around this age these athletes have good static perception but their perception of moving objects perhaps takes a little bit longer for them to mature that you know throughout adolescence you almost see this regression where as children we focus on static objects and we're very reliant on visual stimulus in terms of, of balance and proprioception and and we'll fixate on things and, and walk towards it. it it's not quite that bad with it throughout this growth spurt but what what we do do is we we heighten that that visual stimulus with these adolescent athletes they become more reliant on this and they revert back to this reliance on static perception they lose this depth of field and things like that it's probably worth defining here that you know sight and vision are two very different things where sight is you know seeing identifying an object in space it's about the clarity of the image that they see 
but the vision we talk about with with athletes is more about the senses that feed into that decision making process judging depth of field judging speed of movement trajectory of an object or of an opposition threat and opportunities you know recall of prior experience and again this links back to what we talked about about expert and novice um so this becomes quite multifactorial with the rehabilitation process where are they at a stage of their development where um, these things have regressed on their own regardless of injury then you add into the fact that they've now got an injury and they're, they're almost relearning certain skills then you add into it the difference between working with youth athletes and elite athletes you can't apply adult principles and adult expectations to these youth athletes so for me this is this is a really interesting population to work with for all of those reasons from the age of 15 to 18 this is where athletes really start to master those uncoupled movements that they're, they're called but more commonly we sort of call this dissociation um where you know movement of one limb whilst controlling another or crudely speaking about core stability maintaining a good core whilst whilst moving a peripheral limb or performing a skill all of those things that we almost take for granted with athletes but actually become quite clumsy around this age group because they're not they're not a mastered skill until the age of about 18 in most people we then add the fact that the majority of our rehabilitation exercises that we prescribe are probably quite unfamiliar to an athlete again the age group the young athletes that we work with around the age of 15 or 16, they've probably not really had an injury before. So they've not really gone through a rehab process. So their first injury is, is almost the end of the world. It's they've never had this. They, they don't know how long they're going to be out for saying three or four weeks to a young kid is, is a huge amount of time. You add all of that in there and then we're giving them unfamiliar exercises that they've never done in an attempt to get them back to a skill that they're still learning in terms of their sport that becomes quite complex in itself so we need to remember that that when we're delivering these exercises take into account that this the, the transition that they're going through as an athlete and as a person um, it's important at this stage that we start to monitor for over control where things like accuracy and control of exercises which would be the most regressed version of the exercise that we're looking for slow purposeful those you know, intrinsic exercises. What we want those to be is, is eventually they want to be done with speed and variability, but, but underpinned by that control. And this is where we go back to that Gentile's definition of function and skill. That becomes quite useful where changing or maintaining body positions achieved consistently with efficient motor behaviours. That may not be as achievable in such a short time frame with young athletes as it is with elite athletes because of everything else that's going on developmentally. I think that that's useful to remember that, that the time, time pressures are quite different between the young and elite athletes as well. Elite athletes have financial restraints on their time. There's spectator expectation, coach expectation, media pressure, things like that. I quite like that with the young athletes, we don't have that. We have that time to explore that movement variability get them to know what they can and can't cope with and then but then refine that into so it becomes a skill and i think that's quite quite useful it's it's important that we don't dismiss variability of intersegmental dynamics as an error they're not an error they're, they're, we're expanding the range of ranges of options available to that system 
I think is a good way to, to focus it. In terms of how do we know when the athlete is ready to play, again, that, that then becomes quite complex. That, that depends on your knowledge of, of pre-existing injury status, objective measures that you might have recorded, things like GPS, things like counter-movement jumps, speed, strength, all of those things. But, but understanding the age group that you're working with and what, what the variables are within that, I think, are quite, quite useful. That's probably quite a grey way to finish that question, but uh, I don't think it's a, a well-defined black and white. As you mentioned earlier, things aren't black and white. Um, but I think having consideration of all of those variables would mean that at some point you've probably addressed everything at some point through that rehabilitation process, which then gives you a bit of confidence getting into that end of stage return to play. So Sam, now moving on to a little segment that I like to call maybe gain to know Sam Blanchard. And I know prior to the podcast, you're like, um, I think I'm going to struggle with this. <laughs> so first two questions are a little bit of fun. First one would be, what's your favorite movie? Yeah, I think of all the questions you've asked me, these are the most intimidating. <laughs> favorite movie, favorite movie would be The Usual Suspects. I think that was always on on repeat. I had that. That was almost the first DVD I think I bought, um, and and I had that on repeat growing up. Um, I think for its time, it was it was well ahead of itself with that. Almost one of those movies that the more you watch it, the more you pick up on on some of the subtle cues. I thought it was really clever. Um, so yeah, easily the usual suspects. Now, how about your favorite fictional book? I'm, I'm a bit like you. I know speaking to you, I know that you're a bit of a, a history buff. Um, I, I quite I'm fascinated by history, things like symbology and, and mytho mythological things like that. But I quite like the Dan Brown books. I know that they've been turned into some cheesy movies, but but I, I do quite like like the Da Vinci Code and, and things like that. They, I read them in a couple of days. They were they were a book of like, books I couldn't put down. So and now on to I think one of the most intimidating questions I probably ask on the podcast: most impactful quote or statement ever told to you by either a mentor or someone else in the field, and why did it stand out? I think one of the most useful things that I was ever told and I still use to this day was about control and, and, and managing stress and expectations. Um, and I think this would apply to whatever field of, of work you're in. There are so many variables out there that, that I find myself getting caught up in. And for example, when a player gets injured or re-injured, it's quite easy to sort of reflect on that and take that personally and, and and then you look at working with a team sport how many sort of multifactorial dimensional things that are going on and, and interactions that you've got to have and things like that and so one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was at times where you're feeling things are sort of getting on top of you a little bit is to draw two circles and to write one of them is is things you're in control of and the other one is things that you can't control or impact and just write down everything that's on top of your mind and almost just sort of flush it out. And then the bit that you have no control over, you can almost just throw that in the bin. And then your controllable one is your, your tick list, your to-do list. And to this day, that, that de-stresses me quite quickly. So it's, yeah, that's probably the best piece of advice I think I've been given. Sam, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Um, if anybody wants to 
connect with you or reach out to you, what's the best way they can do so? Uh, I'm quite active on Twitter. Um, uh, I'm one of those people that regrets their Twitter handle being too long because I didn't really understand it when I first signed up. But my, my Twitter handle is at SJB physio underscore sport. Um, and so, yeah, Twitter is probably the, the best way. Um, otherwise, um, I'm on LinkedIn um, as well. So, so people can get, get in touch with me on there. Sounds fantastic. And I'll make sure I link all of that on the show notes. And if you want to send me over some of the resources that you mentioned in the podcast, I'll be more than happy to link down the show notes as well, which is on my website, historicperformance.net. So Sam, absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for taking the time on a Tuesday evening in the United Kingdom to come on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting Great to chat to you, James. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Start Performance Podcast. If you listened to it on iTunes and you enjoyed it, I'd greatly appreciate it if you were to leave a review or rating. In addition, all show notes and resources mentioned within this podcast can be found on historicperformance.net as well as all previous podcast episodes. If you have any guest recommendations, please make sure to head over to my website and use the contact page to contact me. Or you can also find me on Twitter at Historic Perform. You can either send me a tweet or a direct message. Thanks in advance and I'll see you guys next week.